All right. I am now joined by Annie Levin, uh, who is the author of a really interesting article in the new uh, print issue of Current Affairs, which we're about to talk about. How are you doing, Annie? Doing okay. How are you today? Uh, I am. I'm. You know. I'm pretty good. Uh, you know, a little, a uh, little worse for wear after uh, after yesterday, but I'm all right. <laughs> so, so, uh, so. This is uh, this is really interesting. This jumped out at me when I saw you you post about this. Uh, tell me what this article is about. Um, so this article is about the influence that uh, government actors and specifically the CIA had on um, creative writing programs, um, MFAs in creative writing, uh, starting at around the time of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And um, we have some evidence uh, to uh, to detect the of like actual CIA money that went into programs like the writing workshop at the University of Iowa, um, and then uh, I kind of give it a broader view and I look at how the this has actually influenced the course of uh, literary fiction in uh, in this country for the last seventy years or so. Yeah, so that's. I mean, this is a pretty counterintuitive thing. Why, you know, I mean, just, just sort of obvious. What kind of literary fiction people are writing or how, what, you know, programs they're being trained to write it in and uh, the sort of broader Cold War struggle against communism. Uh, yes. So I think that it's... Um... So what was your question? Oh, so yeah, sorry. Let me let me rephrase that. So I, I I think that like a lot of people, when they first hear that, that sounds like super duper counterintuitive because I guess a simpler way to ask the question is like, why would the CIA care about this? Right. So I think in the mid-century, the CIA was very interested in English departments and and in literature. And in fact, they actually recruited from English departments in Ivy League universities. Uh, and I think it's in that way that the um, the founder of a uh, very prestigious uh, Paris Review, Peter Matheson, was a CIA agent. And that became a front group for the CIA in, in Europe in uh, around mid-century, 1950s, 60s. And I think it's... Like, why on earth would you, mm-hmm. you know, pour, pour money? And it wasn't even like big amounts of money. We're talking about, you know, a few thousand dollars here or there to, uh, to change the course of literature. And I think they, they, the CIA was doing what the CIA does, which is putting, you know, little bits of money, a little pressure here and there on projects that they felt were, um, you know, abided by their ideology, by their point of view. And they could sort of nudge the culture one way or another mm-hmm. in that way. And I think it's it's kind of like, how do we know, like, did they actually manage to do that? Like, how did they do that? You know, was it like a, a, a fully loaded propaganda campaign, like Soviet style? Not exactly. It was, but, it, you know, I think it's an interesting part of like literary history in the United States that we don't really talk about enough. Yeah. So, what, so what's the direction they were trying to nudge it in? Um, I think they were trying to nudge it, uh, literature and culture away from politics mm-hmm. and away from specifically communism. Yeah. Well, that uh, 
that makes sense at least. I mean, so, uh, so what's the, like, I mean, you're talking about the, the broader effect of this, like, like how is the way MFA programs like Iowa worked or, or that, you know, the sort of, uh, like, of literary fiction in general. I mean, kind of, you know, kind of give us a little bit of the, you know, the before and after of this. I mean, to the to the extent that you think it worked. Sure. Um, well, I think before uh, World War II and in the lead up to World War II, when the, or particularly in America's involvement in World War II, when mm-hmm. our relationship with the Soviet Union was okay, and we had the the Popular Front, you had a lot of. Uh, writers who, the writers who were popular were writers like John Steinbeck and John Dos Passos, who wrote, a, but with broad scope, with wide societal critique um, about this, about history, about politics, mm-hmm. about things that were happening in the lives of everyday people, um, and could write about an entire community and write about things that are happening to people from outside. Whereas if in post-war fiction, you have more of an emphasis on the individual on like going deep inside somebody's soul and, you know, scouring to see, you know, what, what are their sins? Who, um, what have they done wrong to um, make their lives as miserable as they are? So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a, you know, John Steinbeck versus a writer like um, a a post-war writer like Flannery. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me, uh, uh, we get. We have a. Uh, we have a caller. Uh, so this is Donald. Let's get Donald on. All right, Donald. Hi. 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 You know, I just joined, so I'm not sure what the you know topic of conversation is about. But if I could talk about maybe the censorship thing, is that appropriate to the conversation? Uh, you can talk about that. Sure. Yeah. So you know how it is. You go on YouTube. You'll look something up, and you'll get you'll get fed a lot of similar stuff. So this jogged my memory of the '60s. So I mm-hmm. guess if I was going to be a, a guest on the View, obviously hypothetically, mm-hmm. I guess the question I would have is: Should Dick Cavett, uh, William F. Buckley, you know, and all those guys, should they have should they be prosecuted? Should they have gone to jail? You think about Muhammad Ali. Can you imagine he went from being vilified to being you know this revered figure? But if he wasn't allowed to speak his mind and talk about why he did what he did, forget about it. We never would have known the latter Muhammad Ali. I mentioned uh, Dick Cavett. During the peak of the John Lennon, Yoko Ono, he was kind of performative. He wasn't exactly a radical revolutionary, but he was just about, I guess, along with Ali, one of the most famous people on the planet. So when he talks yeah. about anti-war stuff, it's a big deal. Yeah, he actually kind and of, he actually kind of was a radical revolutionary for a minute, but I, I know what you're saying. Well, no, he was. He was great. I mean, my God, you know, he was assassinated as a political figure as much as he was for because the guy was just nuts. So, yeah, no, I mean, I love the guy. But I mean, you know, during the whole peak thing where he was being deported, he was being hounded by the CIA, the FBI in Europe, the whole song Ballad of John and Yoko. They had to go to Gibraltar to get married. And he was on the Dick Cavett show or Mike Douglas. I think both of Mike Douglas is somebody who people don't think about, but he had some pretty with then controversial figures on his show. And they did a whole hour and a whole week during that whole time on mainstream media. That would never happen today. I mentioned William F. Buckley. 
Now, Eldridge Cleaver turned out to be who knows what was going on during the time when he was doing all this radical stuff and he was never really, you know, he was given a little bit of a pass because I think he was kind of undermining his own movement and he wound up being a Reaganite. Nevertheless, he wrote a book talking about how theoretically he didn't mean it as a call to arms, but that if the 400 years of oppression, shouldn't we be out there killing every white person if they're our enemy? He did a whole show with a calm, cool, and collected audience, very respectful, with William F. Buckley, you know? Uh, and mm-hmm. so I'm not nostalgic of some of the bad, you know, lost lost cause of the 60s, but I just wonder, you know, these people would be locked up and canceled immediately now. They would never get to say their piece. I don't know how we ever get back there. I'll just throw it out there and, you know, get you guys' comment. Yeah, I mean, I would point out that uh... – you know, if you're talking about the '60s, I mean, there, there was uh, there was Quintelpro. You know, there was there was quite a bit of of uh, of pretty bad repression that um, oh. that actually actually you know that actually did happen. Uh, but oh, yeah, I, I, yeah. But I certainly, and yet in spite I, of all that, you still got these voices that can get on mainstream media, even in spite of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Me. All right. That, uh, but yeah, certainly, I certainly take the point. Um, are you with us, uh, Scott? Thanks for taking my call. It's a pleasure to speak with you again, Ben. Um, I guess my question is, I, I am actually a current affairs, uh, print edition subscriber, but I don't know if I've gotten the, uh, the magazine yet. Um, and I guess I, my question for Annie is, is if she has, um, any kind of egregious examples of where the ECIA had influence uh, on creative writing. Um, you know, I know that we see it in Hollywood we, you know, with things like Argo, where they completely mm-hmm. eliminate Canadian influence from, or, or Canadian uh, representation from that story. Um, but just wonder, wondered about examples. Sure. Um, well, as examples as in who, like how they were influenced or, you know, where they connected with these academic departments? Um, I mean, my, my question is sort of, of examples where, you know, there, there is a line between, I mean, it's not, not, I'm not necessarily asking for examples where the CIA said, said, write this and, they did, but more how uh, if there was promotion of uh, writers or the that there is is kind of a line that you can draw between um, what the CIA wanted and what the writer ended up creating. Sure. Well, I think when you're talking about, say, the Iowa Writers Workshop, um, which the um, during the Cold War, their uh, the department head, this guy Paul Engel, who's a, a poet and a Cold Warrior, he would um, fundraise using explicitly uh, like anti-communist rhetoric because he was a Cold Warrior, and he would say we we are we need to train our writers here in the Midwest, and the Midwest is like far from. Uh, you know, coastal centers where there's lots of things happening, where there's lots of politics um, and like left-wing influences that can happen in place somewhere like, you know, New York City. It's in Iowa. You're in the middle of a cornfield. Um, that, that was the idea for him anyway. And his 
he would fundraise to uh, organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the State Department, um, and CIA front groups like the Farfield Foundation or the Asia Foundation, saying we, we can, our creative writers can be called warriors too. And we are need to fight the, um, their, their equivalents in the Soviet Union, where people are being trained to, you know, churn out, um, I guess, like, you know, socialist realism, um, you know, Soviet communist propaganda. Does that, does that answer your question? Kind of, I, I guess I'm, I'm still wondering, like, what kind of spheres of creative writing were were impacted by this like is it is it novels is it short stories is it poems journalism what do you what do you feel like the most the most impacted area would be well i think the most impacted area is definitely with fiction writing and i would say it's it's most impacted not just from you know that period in the cold war but it's it's actually uh, in many ways, we are uh, creative writing because it is so institutionalized in MFA programs in the United States is it, we are still in the Cold War. Um, we are still writing from uh, like literary fiction is uh, overwhelmingly uh, apolitical in the United States. It is overwhelmingly focused on individuals instead of communities and on um you know, what, you know, how can I, how can I better myself? How can, you know, through this, uh, th this protagonist in this novel to, you know, change my life uh, as an individual, as opposed to, you know, forces from outside coming in and, um, you know, influencing you, having power over you. So is, is this action, is, are the actions by the CIA more like, at the at the kind of gestation period for these writers and so yeah. that they don't really yeah. so they're not like reading a draft of what they're writing and saying hey you should make our guys look better yeah i think um you know i think there's still a lot of research to be done in this area on uh how how much uh like the deep state influenced you know, literature, literary culture during the Cold War. But um, I think as far as I'm aware, it was more like, you know, seed money in, in departments and places that were already doing a lot of this work, who were that were already interested in, you know, writing uh, in a place that was beyond ideology, beyond politics. Um, and seeding that money and hoping that a, you know, that a forest, uh, you know, sprang up from these small uh like pots of funding mm. yeah that, i mean that makes sense and it's probably going to be hard to do the research because the cia is not exactly uh liberal with their <laughs> disclosures yeah and in fact this uh the the research that was done is mostly done by a um english professor named um and, and fiction writer named eric bennett who wrote a book called um the uh workshops of empire which is about how these programs were how mfa programs and creative writing were used uh in the cold war as um anti-communist fronts and he found i think it was in like maybe 2012 the the, the cia connection that the that a cia foundation a cia front group called the farfield foundation had it had indeed given money to the iowa writers workshop 
And so that was very, you know, relatively recently that that, that happened. Yeah, I am also curious about some of the, um, you know, some of the ways that this, you know, that the kinds of changes that you're talking about that like, not that this is, you know, not that this is all like the CIA or whatever, you know, but it is interesting that they, uh, that they were, um, you know, that they were using these programs to, you know, to do their part to, to nudge things in this direction, you know, like, but I am interested in the part about how uh, just, just like stylistically, you know, uh, how, how literary cha- fiction kind of changes in this, uh, this period. So, you know, as uh, like everybody else who's ever been in a creative writing class, you know, I remember a lot of sh- about uh, showing, not telling. Uh, and, uh, and this is something that you, you know, that you talk about uh, pretty, pretty extensively in the, the article, right. You know, you use the, uh, the example of, um, you know, John, John Updike's very, uh, you know, uh, beloved by English teachers uh, story, uh, the uh, A&P. And, uh, and, you know, you kind of contrast that with a lot of, a lot of historical literature. And, and it is like this, this kind of, because like if there's anything that seems stylistically distinctive to the kind of literary fiction that was like really like solidified its hold in this period, that's got to be it, right? I mean that it's that you're not um, that you're sort of going deep enough into perspective that you know that you're not actually like pulling out and telling people you know what's what's going on. You know you're just you're just kind of trying to convey it all in a different way. And I think that you know there's certainly a lot of um, you know, fiction that you'll see in any creative writing workshop that could definitely be improved with that advice. But I think you also say some interesting things in the article about what the limits of that approach are. Right. I, um, I, I, I contrast uh, John Updike's A&P, which I, I wound up as a, as a student and like in, in undergraduate graduate school, uh, I think reading maybe four or five times, having been assigned that that art that <laughs> story four or five times, I, it is just, and it just gets anthologized over and over and over again, and it's a weird story. It's about like this horny teenage boy who gets really turned on watching a young woman walking through a uh, supermarket in um, like a bathing suit and bare feet. And uh, at the end of the story, the but his boss tells the girls to put some clothes on, and he quits his job in the hope that the girls will notice him his act of heroism. And that's the that's the entire story. And um, I write in the in the article about how like this, you know, it's it's beautifully written. This story, mm-hmm. it's, it's absolutely exquisite, and um, and yet it is it is also like everything is on, is very much on the surface there's it just sentences and sentences beautiful sentences describing exactly how the girls like foot feet fall onto like the tile of the a and p so that you can mm-hmm. you can see that she doesn't often walk in bare feet and um and it's just sentences and sentences and sentences about that about this and it doesn't for me anyway it's like it's beautiful sculpted sentences but what are they for what is the story for like that you know i don't think that necessarily fiction needs to have like a deep societal meaning but it's just i think noteworthy that updike's story and stories from around that same time period um are focused so much entirely on that beautifully rendered surface and i i contrast that with um 
you know, the with uh, Jane Austen's uh, Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice, which is like, you know, you couldn't have like a more a more different writer, of course, but she in the like, same number of words as, as an Updike story will, you know, instead of describing somebody's footsteps, she will introduce an entire world. Yeah, and, and I think something in particular when you're when you're talking about Austin, uh, you you say, um, so you you quote this uh, this passage from uh, from Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Mister Darcy soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, noble mien, and the report, which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance, of his having ten thousand a year. The gentleman pronounced him to be a fine figure of a man. The ladies declared he was much handsomer than Mister Bingley. And he was uh, looked at with great admiration for about half the evening until his manners gave a disgust which turned the tide of his popularity. For he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company, and to be above being pleased. And not all his large estate in Derbyshire could then uh, save him from having the most forbidding, disagreeable continents and from being unworthy to be compared to his friend. And um, and one thing that you, well, you know, you point out like right after that is uh, is that one advantage of kind of telling in the way that Austin is is telling here that that you know is that um, you say it allows for a multivalence perspective. We see how everyone at the party came to perceive uh, Mr. Darcy as handsome, rich, and kind of an asshole, uh, and uh, so he's uh, you know he's filleted by the uh, protagonist community before the characters meet. And and that is, I, I mean, it's a small example, but I mean, it does seem like maybe it says something interesting about the way that this, the kind of artistry that's involved in really emphasizing showing, not telling, and 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 really just kind of getting, um, you know, having, um, you know, like just really just always being deep in one character's point of view, like that that you know which again, obviously does give rise to a lot of really good writing, but uh, you know, but I mean, I, I think the point you're making with that example is that that is also incredibly limited in terms of what you can do. Yeah. I like, I think John Updike is an incredible writer, but there's the, just focusing on the individual, just having a stream of consciousness narration. It, it cuts you off from um, like the, communal perspectives of uh, you know how we how we act how we make decisions um and what and the you know the actions that we take aren't just you know a decision that we make you know based on an an internal um scouring of our own souls they're based on you know my parents opinions and my friends opinions and my community's opinions and the opinions of um my my twitter followers and we 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 aren't atomized and alone when mm-hmm. uh, when we meet people and these every everyone is really a, a composite of many perceptions at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's get. Um... Oh, can I just can I just say, Ben? I got uh, oh, yeah, an argument and yes. Go comedians Go from Red Emma's, and so I'm reading them this weekend. Very excited. All right. Awesome. All right. All right. Jay, are you here? 
I just wanted to uh, double check something I have written down. Um, I had a uh, this this topic sort of uh, speaks to me pretty specifically, so I've uh, written down my question. Let me read through it one more time. Um, okay. I would be a little bit hesitant to read anything too sinister into some of the CIA's involvement in things like the Iowa Writers Workshop Program. Mm -hmm. um, because speaking just from my own personal experience, there was a time when I thought it would be a good idea to uh, put together basically a yearbook for the Navy ship I was on, showing where we had been, uh, because I thought it would get me a better job. Mm -hmm. And there was a time a little bit before that when um, the fleet commander thought it would be a good idea to uh, send out an email explaining why uh, the ship went to a few places that year. Um, and I ended up putting some of that information in my book. And the people who worked for the fleet commander drafted that email form to sort of explain why they were sending the ship to various places. Um, and so none of us, I never set out to publish a book that contained a cover-up for people accepting uh, bribes and corruption and um, accepting payments of alcohol and prostitutes to, uh, send, the, to uh, send Navy ships uh, places where they could embezzle money. But that's what I did. Um, so I guess... My question is, are you sure that maybe the CIA didn't just send this, isn't just sending money to places by accident? Maybe there's another acronym for Iowa Writers Workshop, and they thought they were funding the Wobblies. Um, well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you mentioned the, you know, I think the intentions of um, the people getting or receiving this kind of money, because I think, you know, for the most part, a lot of the, the, the magazines, the academic departments that um, were, that received, you know, government money or money from, um, from private businesses, uh, in the hope that, you know, their, the, the writers coming out of some of these programs would be anti-communist, like, these are not bad people, these are not people with bad intentions, um, these are people who want to, you know, write, um, you know, beautiful and entertaining and enlightening literature. And I think that, you know, it's very, I, I organize uh, cultural workers um, in, as a, as a DSA member and um, as a, as a journalist sometimes. And like, it's, there is so little money in the arts and in in literature in general, and this was the case, I think, less so, but was the case in the in the fifties and sixties too. And I think, you know, now as then, like there, it is it is not hard. It does not take a lot of money to get an artist to um, to nudge them in a certain direction. Um, it, it, an artist or an academic, it, it's, um, you know, compared to the, you know, trillions of dollars that, that, you know, governments, governments handle, you, you would, you don't need to um, finance, uh, you know, an art, an art project, you know, that much. It can, um, to, uh, to, to get it to, to nudge it in one direction or another.
So I don't think that these, you know, I think most of these people involved are, did not have like particularly sinister intentions or were like, you know, virulent anti-communists either. They were just you know, writers who wanted to wanted to write. And this was the the general direction that the zeitgeist was going in at the time. But you do. But you do think that I mean, but the CIA itself, um, you know, the through and, and actually, by the way, uh, I think you said a little bit of this earlier, but but. Can you say a little bit more about the actual mechanism for the uh, for for this funded? Right. So I don't I don't know a huge amount about it, except from um, Eric Bennett's book. I know that the um, they they gave money through uh, front groups, the Farfield Foundation and the Asia Foundation um, to the IR Writers Workshop. I think there were also um, State Department grants to um, some of the early creative writing programs in the in the fifties and sixties, and then there are. Um, uh, foundations like the like the Rockefeller Foundations are not not government; they're like privately funded, but they have a lot of the same um, the same intentions. They want to uh, drag literature away from politics into um, sort of more of an an individualistic, um, you know, first person perspective. Mm-hmm. So for the participants, we, they wouldn't know money was coming from the CIA. They would just think they were taking money from the Ford Foundation or from some that's right um, rich price. That's right. In fact, like nobody knew that some of this money was coming from the CIA until like a few years ago. Yeah, that's uh, that is extremely interesting. Uh, thank you for uh, thank you for the call. I want to get in, see if we can get in one more person. So. Um, are you here, gamer? All right. Are you with us? Are you see the uh, unmute button at the bottom of the screen. So you just got to tap on that the microphone with the line through it to unmute yourself. All right. Well. Um, well, if you figure that out, uh, be uh, be happy to uh, uh, be happy to uh, to to get you uh, uh, to get you back in on this. But um, meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, I guess like I guess it might be interesting as we kind of wrap this up to to think a little bit about the sort of broader question that you end the article with that. Um, you uh you know you think you know since a lot since most of our discussion has been you know descriptive like you know here's here's what happened here's sort of direction that um you know here's the direction that literary fiction was was nudged in and again not that it's all the cia but you know but that the the cia did a little bit of the nudging uh and um and you know, we had a little bit, you know, just a little bit on the on the normative question, which which is really what I'd like to to kind of maybe end on, which is you know kind of what you talked about at the end about like um, what role you think should be played on about literature, right? Because it's like you know all this stuff about the Cold War. I mean, it's interesting history. Uh, it's it's you know it's it's worth thinking about. It's suggestive, but it's um, you know, it's a little bit of a right angle to like what, you know, 
like what the uh, what kind of literature you'd like people to be writing or how you think that that should be related to politics. And you do touch on that a little a little bit at the end of the article, if you want to speak to that a little bit now. Sure. Um, so I think that there is right now in left-wing activism in the U.S. a little bit of a of fear of culture. Um, just a a, a a little bit of like philistinism about about art and and literature we shouldn't be interested in that stuff because it's not um you know writing writing a novel painting a painting making a puppet for a like a a, a climate protest that's that's not praxis that's mm-hmm. um you know that's we don't we don't have time for for that stuff people are people are dying people are getting evicted and i I think that you know it is we are we are losing people's hearts by um by not engaging with uh with art and literature in in the in the way that I think the the Soviet certainly did and in the way that the um you know the US you know deep state did in the in the 50s and 60s and you know they they understood that culture is important you can change people's minds you can change people's hearts and for that reason they poured resources into um into academic departments and into institutions and those institutions are are still around many decades later and they're still uh you know broadcasting you know something very close to that that same ideology to mm. the ideology of um to of, you know those who are currently in power of a sort of centrist um li- centrist mainstream liberalism that it just uh holds sway in academia and and in particularly in publishing and in creative writing and i think that um you know when what the um you know should you know the left or whatever however you want to take that word mm-hmm. you know be become interested in um in art and literature i think that could be really really powerful to build you know how institutions publishing houses um you know departments that are are funded and have a specific like propagandistic um purpose that we are we are here to promote the the interests of the left we want to widely broadcast stories about the labor movement about left-wing solidarity because how do we you know imagine um what the future is going to be like how do we imagine our you know our collective socialist um socialist future we do so mm. through culture we do so through narrative that that we build uh you know t- as a as a as a collective through solidarity and writers are a huge part of of, of um creating that um that 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 collective future and i think by completely ignoring that we are losing out on people's hearts we are we're mm-hmm. losing out on you know i think drawing in a lot of people into leftism who are maybe you know who are never going to you know go and go and canvas or show up at a protest um but who do love stories and who do love music mm-hmm. and we can and that is it's it's a beautiful propagandistic tool that has been used by you know every um you know, activist organizing, uh, you know, mo- left-wing movement that has that has ever been. Except, but I think that we are so 
atomized, we are so alienated from um, from culture, kind of gets ignored in a lot of contemporary uh, movement activism. Yeah, that is really interesting. Well, uh, thank you so much, Annie. Everybody should uh, check out uh, her article in the new uh, print issue of Current Affairs. Uh, so uh, this is uh, politics and the uh, and the MFA, uh, which is you know for a variety of reasons really interesting uh, for me to say. This is a uh, uh, it's a fact that not a lot of people know about me, but I actually do have one of those. It's from a okay. low residency program in uh, the uh, University of Southern Maine uh, from uh, from back in you know the late two thousands, but. Um, so anyway, I was really interested to read this, uh, and uh, and everybody should check it out, and everybody should, uh, yeah, everybody should go out and, and order current affairs. So thank you, Annie. All right, thank you, Ben. Great talking to you. Great talking to you. Bye. Bye.